Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, we're going to start there. Um, and then we're going to go back to Genesis, and then we're going to come back to the New Testament, and then we're going to finish up, and then we're going to take communion. And I've, so I wish I had like a little roadmap that would be awesome for you guys this morning. Um, because as you know, we've been going through uh, chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. Yes? Right? You're in the, that church this morning. Good. Okay. Um, if you're not going through the book of Hebrews chapter 11, um, welcome. But uh, so right now we've made it up to ele- verses 11 and 12, and that's what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. And I'll read that first, and then we're going to go into Romans. But here's verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Awesome passage, right? Abraham and Sarah, we all know the story, couldn't conceive, and then yet here comes Isaac. And the question that might come up is, well, what does that, what does that, what does that have to do with us? Right? Great story, great faith, great Bible lesson. But where's the connection? And we find that in Romans chapter 4. Right? So that's going to bring it from the Old Testament, from, from Abraham's descendants, to us today. And I want to read through this, and I've got a few things that are bolded out because it, it connects it all for us today. Starting with verse 13. In chapter 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Did you guys get that? That's the first piece that I want us to look look at, is that it's not just adherence of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, right? Because... We know that Abraham had physical descendants that became the nation of Israel, but he also had descendants of faith who had the same faith that Abraham had. And your faith is credited to you as righteousness. When you have faith, that's credited to you as righteousness, just the way it was Abraham. Verse 17, we pick it up. As, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God whom he, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so, your offspring, so shall your offspring be. Here it is. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, right? You heard that? It was not for his sake alone, but for ours also. And Paul, he's writing that letter to the Romans, but he's writing that to all believers, that it wasn't just written for Abraham, it was written for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. God, I, I think about this faith that Abraham had, and I, pr- I thank you for his example, and I pray that as we look into this word and we look at the example of Abraham and Sarah, God, that you would stir up in us the same kind of faith. Lord, that we who are as good as dead, Father, would, would, would come alive and bear fruit and bear offspring. Lord, would you be with us this day? In your name we pray, amen. Here's the connection. Here's this story from the Old Testament with Abraham and his physical descendants. And then what Paul does is that he carries it to us today. And he says, look, it wasn't just for Abraham. It was for us. And what we're going to do as we jump back into Genesis and look at that story, we're going to carry it through to the New Testament. And we're going to see this thread that's woven through Scripture about how God takes something that was as good as dead and he brings life from it. And I'm going to say that again because it's an encouraging message that we need to hear. Throughout Scripture, what God does is that he takes something that's as good as dead and he brings life from it. And some of you might need to hear that message this morning because you might feel as good as dead. But I want you to know that God is ready and he has promised that he will bring life out of you. Because what we see is that God spoke through his word. And here we go. We're going back to Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 12. We're going to go through to chapter 21. That's a lot of material to cover. We're not going to read it all. But I want you to get the full story of Abraham from his first call, from the beginning of all of this through to the fulfillment of his promise. It occurs over the course of 25 years. Anybody waited 25 years for something that God had promised you? Anybody have that kind of patience and faith? Because in Romans 4, it says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God And that his faith didn't weaken, but it grew stronger. That's the kind of faith that we need. Even if it takes 25 years for God to carry from his first word through to completion. So it took 25 years and three visions. He communicates his vision with Abraham. His covenant. And that covenant has two components to it. The first one 
uh, Zan kind of touched on last week, and it's a kingdom place. In Genesis 12, God is calling Abraham to a place where God will set up his kingdom. He's calling him out. The second one is a kingdom people. Right? So God's covenant has a kingdom place and a kingdom people. In the Old Testament, that was a physical place. But here with us today, we are the kingdom. And we are the people. We are God's temple. And we are God's chosen people. We're part of that covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, Abraham is 75 years old at this point, right? Great time for a, a life change. He's ready. Maybe that was his midlife crisis. But he gets, a, he gets a, a call from God, and God speaks to him, and he says, I will make you a great nation. That's kind of the, the, the emphasis of the message that he gets in Genesis 12, that first call. And not a lot of specifics in that. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse you, but not a lot of specifics, right? You see that in chapter 12? You can go back and read that and really look at it, but there's not a lot of detail, which is exactly what some of us want. We thrive on lack of detail and clarity of communication. When we do not have clear and specific instructions of what we're supposed to do, that's our sweet spot. Maybe not for all of us. But Abraham doesn't get that. He doesn't get a clear roadmap of, okay, first I'm going to take you here and I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to do this and, and at this point, this is going to throw you for a little loop and over here we're going to sit for a while and I'm going to make you wait. Abraham doesn't get that. He says, go. Leave your home and go. And that was the first vision. That was the first time that God spoke through his word to Abraham. But notice, the only thing that he talks about in terms of descendants, in terms of heirs, is that I will make you a great nation. That's all that Abraham hears. So later, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, here's the second vision. Right? Here's the first time that God lays out specifically what his covenant is with Abraham and what will become the nation of Israel. Verses 1, it says, After these things, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. And I want to pause right there because after these things, so what's he talking about, right? Because it's important that we don't just read past that. What happened is that Lot had been kidnapped. Uh, Abram went and rescued him. They had some fighting, um, and then basically a king wanted to present Abram with a gift, with a reward. Say, here's some treasure. Thanks for helping us out. And Abram says, no. His reward is going to come from God. And after all of these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God's recognizing the fact that Abram didn't take that handout. He didn't take that payment. He didn't take the, the shiny thing that was in front of him, but was holding out for something greater. And God honors that here in verse 1. Verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have, not, you, have not given, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abraham, Abram at this time, he's saying, what, what are you, you going to give me? What do I have? I remember that you told me I was going to be a great nation, but I don't have any kids. I don't have anything to pass on. Abram at this time doesn't have a legacy. And it was common at this time for it to go in the family and for, for inheritances to be passed on. And if that didn't happen, somebody in your household and you would kind of adopt as a son. And that still happens in a lot of cultures today, especially in the Far East, uh, Japanese culture, all these business leaders. What happens is that they want to pass on their inheritance, their legacy, their power, their value. And if they don't have children, what they'll do is they'll adopt somebody so that the company will go to the son. But it's an adoption. It's not a, it's not a biological process. It's not natural. It's through adoption. And so this is what Abraham's talking about. That was going to be his way out. In verse 4, God says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So here's another piece of the puzzle that's getting fit into place, right? God's speaking through his word. Yes, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it through your children, through your descendants. I'm going to make you the heir. And this is another specific detail. This is building that piece from chapter 12. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's this verse. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did he believe? He believed that God would fulfill his promise to provide offspring and to build this nation. But it goes on. It doesn't end there. In Genesis 17, uh, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come for you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. If we jump down to uh, verse 15 through 21, here's another piece that fills this in, right? Because so what, what do we have? In chapter 12, it was a great nation. 
in chapter 15, it would be descendants of Abraham specifically, his bloodline. Now in 17, we get another piece of this. In, in verse 15, and God said to Abraham, and as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And this is the last detail, and this is 25 years after that first call that Abraham finally gets all of the details. Long time of waiting. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Oh, that Abraham, and then Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall be your son, and you shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Because what I didn't talk about and what I'm going to get into in a little bit, if you notice, I skipped over chapter 16. And there's a reason for that because something happens in chapter 16 that kind of gives Sarah a bad name. And we'll get into that. But what happens is that in, uh, so we have this full picture, right? Abraham will become a great nation. It will be his descendants. And more specifically, it's going to come from Abraham and Sarah. The question then happens is that, and what happens when we see the response in this, is that their inner selves were stirred as God spoke these words Abraham and Sarah were stirred, though maybe not in the way that we would expect. In, in 15.6, it says, in, he believed the Lord and it, he counted it to him as righteousness. So that's a great stirring. Abraham, Abraham believed it. He had faith. He trusted. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. But there's two other ways that they were stirred, that we see the humanity of it. And I love this. In, in chapter 17, we read it. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Sometimes the promises of God seem impossible. And naturally, they are. Through our own means, they are impossible. And so it's justified that Abraham would respond this way. And Sarah responds the same way in Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah, she was hiding in the tent. The three visitors were visiting Abraham. They were having this conversation. The three visitors reminded Abraham that Sarah was going to bear a child. And Sarah was hiding in the tent and listening. And verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have this pleasure? So they have the same reaction. They're both laughing because God's saying, look, I understand. God knew how old they were. God knew that this was physically impossible. And yet this is what God wanted to do. God wanted to bring through the impossible his plan and his vision for these people. 
And Sarah gets a bad name there in chapter 18 when she's laughing. And yet in 17, Abraham responds the same way. I find that interesting. So their, their inner selves were stirred in different ways, but we know that they were credited as righteousness. And what happens also is that they obeyed God in their own way. So let's go back to Genesis 16. This is 10 years later. They're, they're settled. They're in the land. They're living. They're waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Nothing's happening. In verses 1 and 2, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Right? But we know that Abraham was going to bear children. It had been promised to him. We knew that he was going to have offspring and that he was going to become a great nation. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And this is Sarai trying to bring about God's plan her own way. And she understands that Abram is going to bear children. She understands that this is going to happen. She, she heard the vision that God gave Abraham that he was going to bear fruit and that he was going to become a great nation. And so she's acting on it and she's taking it into her own hands because she figures, well, God's not doing it through me, so it might as well, you know, we're going to make it happen somehow. And so she's, she's trying to do her best. But this is not the way that God wanted it to be. This was not God's plan. He wanted to operate through the impossible. Through people who were as good as dead and could not reproduce. And I find it interesting that God doesn't reprimand Abraham and Sarah through this journey. He's patient with them. He understands that faith is a test, that faith is a struggle, that sometimes we don't always get it right. But we see eventually that God bore witness. And that in Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And the patriarchs continue. And the nation of Israel begins through people who are as good as dead. What I want to do now as we look at this picture and as we understand this story of Abraham and Sarah and their faith and the faith that was required to bring them through. As I talked earlier, I want to draw this up until today and to us. Because what happens is that this theme runs throughout all of scripture. This idea of God taking what was as good as dead and bringing life from it. It goes into the New Testament. And we see this same story in Elizabeth in Luke chapter one. So this is Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they're old and they're righteous and they can't bear children. Sound familiar? It's the same story. Verse 7 of Luke 1, it reads, But they had no children because Elizabeth was, was barren, and both were advanced in age. And yet, what does God do? 
God works through bodies that were as good as dead and brings about John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of the Messiah. Working in the impossible to bring about his will. We see in chapter 18 of Luke 1 a similar response to God's impossible call. I love this. And Zechariah said to the angel after he had heard that he was going to bear children, he said, How shall I know this? For when I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Look, I get it. These, these responses are typical. These are normal when God calls us to do extreme things. And your reaction when God calls you to do something, if you laugh and question at first, I get that. And I think God does too. Because it's a natural response. Right? We don't typically operate at the level of God. Right? We typically don't walk in the realm of the impossible. That's not our daily routine. For some of us, getting out of bed may seem like we're walking in the impossible. But this is the response when God calls us to something. It's okay if it's beyond what we normally would understand and expect and be willing to walk into. And yet, all through Scripture, we see this. We see this message in, in uh, Elizabeth's song. She sings a song when she learns that she's pregnant. And it goes back to it because uh, one of the verses in it, she says, To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So in Luke 1, as, she, as Elizabeth is singing this song, as she's praising God for doing this impossible thing, she looks back because she would have known the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so she's reflecting on it, just as we today should reflect on the promise that God has made for us and the impossible things, the supernatural things that he is calling us to. Another story that comes right after it of God bearing witness to this is Mary in Luke 1 as well. Just as Elizabeth is, is becoming pregnant and going through that, Mary a teenage virgin who should not have become pregnant through no um, human means. Was this possible? And yet God working through the supernatural. Her song, when she is pregnant, she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. And that's her song. So this was another person who by all humanly means was not going to be bearing children right away. And yet through the supernatural working of God, the impossible came about. And it comes to us today. Right? And this idea of talking about supernatural and the impossible and God working through bodies which were as good as dead. It might be a bit above us and it might be beyond us and it might be beyond what we want in our walk. Where we just want a nice church that we could go to, a nice faith that we could kind of dabble in. And yet God is calling us to so much more. The verse that applies to us here today 
right, from Genesis through to the New Testament to us today is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. Paul saying, and you were dead in the trespasses of sin. Spiritually, you are as good as dead. I was as good as dead. I was not going to bear spiritual fruit. I was not going to have a spiritual legacy of people that I was going to bring into the kingdom. Because I was dead in my trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Get this, this is where we're going with this. Ready? But God, I love that. Whenever you see but God in the Bible, you know something, something good is coming. That's always an exciting, an, an exciting thing to see. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and raised us, okay, whoop, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Get this, verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We were dead. We were as good as dead. Not physically, but spiritually. And that's the connection I want to draw. And this is how the, this narrative of Abraham, where he had physical descendants and he was physically as good as dead. And yet, as we saw in Romans 4 and as we see in Ephesians 2, there's a spiritual component to this as well. That we were all spiritually as good as dead. But what does God do through his grace and through his mercy and through his love for us? He has worked something that was impossible. And he's given us an opportunity to multiply. And that's the challenge to all of us today is to take hold of the promise that God laid before us. And I'm challenging you here to walk into that and to consider him faithful, to take who, you, who are as good as dead, to allow God to work through you to have a spiritual legacy of people that are going to be in heaven because of you. William Barclay, he wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, and he said this, faith is the ability to take hold of that grace which is sufficient for all things in such a way that the things which are humanly impossible become divinely impossible. With God, all things are possible. And therefore, right? Read this. Therefore, the word impossible has no place in the vocabulary of the individual Christian or of the Christian church. I want to read that again. Faith is the ability to take hold of the grace which is sufficient for all things, 
right? All things, right? He can do all things in such a way that the things which are humanly impossible become divinely possible. We're talking about going deeper. I want us to pray prayers that are humanly impossible. Yes? Amen? I want us to pray pray for things that are only possible through divine intervention. And I want to watch God show up. Because we see that. We see him working through scripture in the impossible. And if this is what we're going to believe, if this is what we're going to hold on to, if this is the faith that we're going to have, we need to live in that. And we need to accept that God wants to do impossible things. When we look at that person in our job, when we look at that neighbor, when we look at that family member and say, it's impossible. There's no way God could save them. I want to see God show up and do divinely things that are only possible through him. The word impossible has no place in the vocabulary of the individual Christian or of the Christian church. That's my prayer for us. Is that Summit Community Church does away with the, with the impossible. That we begin to operate as a family and as a body of believers in where impossible is not a word that we use. I think of it this way. <coughs> How about New England? How about Maine? Right? Maine's as good as dead. That's what everybody keeps saying. Spiritually, Maine's as good as dead. There's nothing going on here. It would be impossible for us to see God doing something in this area. Impossible. There's no way. People aren't interested. They don't want it. But God. But God is begging you, saying, look at my word. Look at how I bore witness. Let me work in the impossible. That's my heart. And that's what I pray that your heart is as well. That as God stirs you and that God stirs you towards obeying him, that we move in that. He's always calling us to bring new life to people and to usher them into the kingdom. But I believe that God has something specific for you that he's calling to you. Just as he called Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Abraham and Sarah. As he called them to walk in the impossible. Would you be willing to step out in that? And hear what God has for you.